Yeah. One of the things that's uh, interesting in how it works out, we don't always preach a specific message to Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday, like jump into the Gospels, and sometimes we do. Um, but it also seems that more often than not, when we don't intentionally structure it that way, uh, God in his sovereignty finds ways to overlay those themes from wherever we are going to be in his word with uh, that time in the liturgical cycle of the church calendar that we are in. And as Matt gave us a great introduction this morning to what Palm Sunday is all about and focusing upon the humanity of Jesus and his humility and even his own frailty that allowed for him to die on our behalf, um, today the theme from Hebrews, which we're jumping back into, is Jesus as the better sympathizer and the fact that he's able to sympathize with us because he understands human weakness, um, having been tempted in, in every way that we are, yet without sin. Um, and so there's, you know, the humility of Jesus one way or another, whether we witness him riding on a donkey into Jerusalem or in the, the temptation that he faced that is like the temptation you face as a weak human being, um, we see that same theme on display. And so that's just God's sovereignty at work. Uh, before we get into Hebrews, I want to spend some time praying for a church that we love, um, especially your leadership has uh, a good and close relationship with Renovation Church out in Syracuse, New York. Renovation Church is in the Acts 29 network, um, which is a church planting network that we're a part of that isn't just about planting churches. Uh, we also share some, some theological um, affinities um, and, and as well as camaraderie with these churches and with their leaders, and there's good accountability and fellowship there. And uh, Mike Mazie, who's the lead pastor at Renovation Church, is actually the area coordinator for New York State. So whenever we gather, uh, I think there's six or seven Acts 29 churches in New York State right now. Um, We typically gather out in Syracuse, um, and at the very least under Mike's leadership, and he's been a blessing to us um, uh, in that. And so we want to spend some time praying this morning for Mike and for Renovation Church. Um, Many of you know I went on sabbatical last May. Mike is actually going to be going on sabbatical uh, after Easter, uh, much deserved and needed. Um, he didn't even mention that uh, as something to be praying for, but I would love to lift him up for that this morning. But he said, pray for financial, ongoing financial needs for our, our church. They, they sacrificially planted Covenant Church, another church we supported uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and whenever you sacrificially do something like that, you're going to feel, you're going to have to tighten your own belt. So Pray for financial needs. Um, right now, thematically, some mental and health and marriage issues in their congregation we can be praying for, as well as their desire uh, to have an increased opportunity to reach people who are far from God. I love their mission statement, which is that every man and woman and child in the Syracuse area where they are would have a chance to hear and respond to the gospel. And that's just what they want more of an opportunity to do. So would you join me in praying for Renovation Church this morning? Father, once again, we feel encouraged by and thank you for the fact that the church is so much bigger than ourselves, that we're a part of a big family globally and locally, and we think of our brothers and sisters in Syracuse, New York at Renovation Church and give you thanks and praise for your faithfulness to them, to call them to yourself, to gather them where they can worship you this morning. Thank you for Mike and the love of Jesus that he has shown to so many of the churches and pastors in New York State that are a part of the Acts 29 network and even outside of that. We pray you'd bless him on this sabbatical. We pray you'd refresh him and restore him as you promised to do in Psalm 23 and elsewhere. We pray for their church in light of their sacrifice to send many people out and finances and 
and leadership from their own church to see the gospel spread in other parts of Syracuse, would you provide for their financial needs? We pray, Father, for those who are struggling with mental health and marriage issues within their church. Oh, Lord, would you be a source of comfort and hope for them? Would you give wisdom and skill to the pastors as well as the members of that congregation in a position to care for and help and advise those who are struggling in those ways? And would you continue to provide for them an increased opportunity to reach every man, woman, and child in the Syracuse area with the gospel that they may have a chance to hear it and to respond to it for your glory and for their joy. So thank you for them, Lord. Thank you that they are worshiping as we are this morning, one and the same God, one and the same Savior, to whom we turn our attention now as we look at what your word has to teach us from Hebrews chapter 4 about Jesus as our high priest. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Um, Years ago, I... uh, Went back to a camp that I had worked at um, for a summer after I graduated from college. And uh, I went back for, it was kind of like a reunion, but really it was just a work weekend. It was a conference season where guests were coming in and they needed some extra help on this big weekend. So it was a fun opportunity to go back to a place I had a lot of nostalgia for as well as see some friends. And while I was there, uh, I saw a lot of former staff members that I had worked with, including one uh, particular man who was about my age, maybe a little bit older, who I'd worked closely with one of the summers I'd been there. And he was just one of these guys. He had a wonderful personality. He was funny, uh, small C, charismatic. You know, people were just drawn to him. He also was very godly. He was one of these people who, like, great personality and fun to be around, but also, like, deeply serious about his relationship with the Lord and deeply cared for the people around him. Um, and he had kind of this gravitational pull so that people would want to be around him, but when you were, it wasn't all about him. Um, like, he had eyes to see you. You felt like you mattered when you were in his presence. And I remember he was the one who gave me the nickname that summer, Big Fire, because the camp that I worked at had a policy that you couldn't make a campfire that was higher than your waist. So whenever I was around, you could have a big fire because my waist was a little higher than everybody else's. As clever as that nickname was, the reason that I remember it to this day is because of who gave it to me uh, and the impression that he had made on me, because I just really admired and looked up to this guy. Well, here we were several years later, and I saw him in the lobby of, uh, of this conference center as I just arrived, and there was other people milling about too. I expected the normal pleasantries. We had worked, you know, a few years prior together, um, but instead what happened was he came up and he gave me a big bear hug. And he kind of whispered in my ear as he was hugging me. He said, brothers, good to see you. I love you, and I've been praying for you over these past few years. And it took me by surprise. It took me aback, but in a really good way. And it stuck with me. And ever since then, periodically, I'll just remember that moment. I'll be like, why did that make such a big impact upon me? Why was I so surprised by that? And I think in my most honest moments, at least a part of what was a contributing factor, is I just felt unworthy of that kind of reception from this kind of a guy after all those years. Um, Because we had worked closely together, even though it was just for a few months, he saw my flaws, he saw my sins, he saw that I wasn't that cool or that funny, and at least like he was. And so I wasn't on his level, so why would I be that important to him all these years later? And what I realized was because he was exemplifying to me the grace of God who sees past all of those things and who sees our value in a very different way than we sometimes see each other's value. 
And I think that many Christians live with a similar assumption as I did as to how God sees them, not just other people may see them. They may know the gospel, that Christ died for sinners. Even while we were still sinners, Christ chose to die for us. That he came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, the sick. Right? We know these truths. People know these truths. But they may still have a hard time believing it because how could a holy God who is perfect still after all this time have patience and grace toward me? So while they may profess the right things, the true things of Christianity functionally, they become more and more distanced from God because they have a hard time imagining that God could really mean them when they read in the scriptures about his radical love for sinners. question that I have for you this morning is what would you give to have a confidence that God loves you and is eager to be with you? Or to take that a step further, what would you give to have a confidence that God knows you inside and out, sins and failures, and then instead of being incredulous towards you, that after all this time you still struggle, he sympathizes with your weakness, and he's still eager to be with you? What would you give to have that confidence? That's what today's passage in the book of Hebrews is about. Some would call these first three verses of the passage we're about to read the author of Hebrews' thesis statement, really, for the whole book. So it's a really important passage that we're in this morning. Um, And it's kind of a bridge, too, between where we've been in the first four chapters and where we'll be going. It comes at the end of a series of exhortations that we've been seeing, these admonitions and warnings that have been given by the author. And then it also introduces this central portion of the book that discusses the nature and meaning of Jesus as a high priest. Five chapters, from chapters 5 through 10. That's really what the author of Hebrews will be unpacking. Now, while many of the exhortations that we've seen to this point have come in the form of warnings, this one is different. It stands in contrast to the others. This one comes in the form of a warm invitation that for some here this morning might catch you by surprise, that you might even be reluctant to fully embrace and believe is true. So let's read together Hebrews 4, verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 5 this morning. And I believe that will be on the screen behind me as well, or you could follow along in your Bibles. I did not write down the page number this week in the blue hardcover ESV Bibles. I'll give you a second to find that. Hebrews chapter 4, kind of in the very, very latter half of the New Testament, toward the end of your Bible. And I would ask that if you're able to at this time, that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Father, we pause once more to pray and ask, well, first of all, to just give you thanks that we have your word, that you're a God who's desired to communicate to us, that you've initiated in that way, that you initiated by sending your son to this earth to live and to die for us. And now we pray for your help in understanding words that maybe we're encountering for the first time or for the thousandth time, but by the power of your Holy Spirit would seep deeply into our heart and help us understand this gospel, this good news for sinners that we so desperately need this morning. Would you do that for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name, amen. So ultimately where I want to go with you this morning is in answering that question that I asked you a moment ago about your confidence and that desire to have that kind of confidence in who our God is. And so I want to talk about four reasons that we can have confidence that because Jesus is our great high priest, God always welcomes our approach to him, both at our best and our worst. That we're not imposing upon God when we approach him to pray, to worship, when we approach him in confession for the sin that we've committed for the hundredth time, when we need his help for something. He doesn't begrudge us, but that he actually delights in us approaching him in these ways and others. We're going to talk about four reasons we can have that confidence this morning. But first I want to talk about something that I don't want to take for granted. We all understand here. Um, It's a little bit foreign to us, culturally speaking, and that is this idea of a high priest. Um, Most of us didn't get up this morning and think to ourselves, I know what I really need today. I need a high priest to be able to get through this day. It's a bit foreign to us. Of course, the need for a high priest would have been taken for granted in ancient Israel. So what is a high priest? Well, ever since the Garden of Eden, sin uh, put up this dividing wall between mankind and God. Like oil and water, holiness and sinfulness just don't mix. And so ever since the garden, God has not only continued to reveal what it means to us that he is a holy God, but also that he is a merciful God. And he set in motion a plan to redeem fallen mankind to himself. And a part of that plan included setting up this sacrificial system that we read about in the Old Testament for sins. There were appointed mediators to represent Israel and offer sacrifices on behalf of their sins. These were called priests. And there were the regular, high, uh, the regular priests uh, who, were, who offered sacrifices uh, on almost a daily basis for people for their sins as the people would bring their offerings to the temple or the tabernacle. But there also was a high priest who was appointed by God. The very first one was Aaron, Moses' brother, and who was the only one who could offer a sacrifice to cover everyone's sins both the known ones and the ones we're ignorant to, on the Day of Atonement, it was called. Modern-day terms, Yom Kippur, is what it's called. And this took place only once a year. And what would happen is the high priest would go into this place inside the temple called the Holy of Holies. It was kind of this inner sanctum of the temple where God's presence dwelt most fully. And they would go beyond this thick curtain that was meant to separate God's presence and his holiness from the rest of Israel. 
And only the high priest would have access to God's presence in this way. And he would take blood from a sacrifice that he had made, both for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people, and he would sprinkle it upon what was called the mercy seat, which was basically God's represented throne on earth inside the Holy of Holies. And this would happen year after year, but only once a year, and it was kind of a catch-all for the sins of the people so that they could be restored and in right relationship with God. So they needed this high priest to intercede for them with these sacrifices to restore that relationship. But that immediate presence with God was only granted to the high priest in Israel, and even for him, only one time a year. Now, the fact is that whether you and I realize it or not, you and I need a high priest as well, even though we are not a part of ancient Israel, or else we would remain eternally separated from God. And we have one, because while it's not the most common term that we will use in reference to Jesus, this is one of the roles that he serves um, as a mediator between us and God. And in fact, Hebrews 4.14 describes him not only as a high priest, but as a great, our great high priest. So we'll, we'll get to answering the question of how he is that in just a moment. So let me go back to the question at hand. What are the reasons that you and I this morning can have confidence that because Jesus is our great high priest, God always welcomes your approach of him, both at your best and at your worst? Well, four reasons. The first one is that Jesus sympathizes with sinners despite never having sinned himself. In Hebrews 4.15, I'll read it again. It tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The word sympathy here, translated in other translations like the NIV as empathy or the NLT as understanding to try to draw out the meaning, it means basically you've gone through the same thing or something very similar as someone else, so you can, you can kind of understand what it is that they've gone through. And what it does is it breeds compassion for that person and for their circumstances. But how could Jesus understand us in our weakness if he never sinned? Well, we have to understand that sin is just the final act of giving into temptation. And temptation is really the place where all the struggle and the suffering happens. We actually came across this idea of Jesus being like us so that he could help us earlier on in Hebrews. You may remember back in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, the last two verses of that chapter. I want to read them again to you because some scholars even believe that the author in the end of chapter 4 was really picking up back where he left off at the end of chapter 2. Here's what he said back there. Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so fully human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So now in our passage today, we understand at least in part why he is able to help. Because in Jesus having endured temptation, he's able to sympathize with what it is that we go through when we are tempted as fallen human beings. Now in our passage today, the author also points out That it's in every respect that he has been tempted as we are. That doesn't mean every scenario that you've been through, Jesus has been through. It means every kind of temptation that you and I experience, Jesus experienced. The temptation to lust, the temptation to hate, to doubt, uh, to covet, 
to be greedy, to be dishonest. He experienced all of those temptations and more. Now, he didn't live in the technological age, the digital age that we live in today. There are different mediums through which temptation comes, but the same temptations, and those are what were common to him and what he faced. Now, what's more, it's not just that Jesus tasted a little bit. Okay, I know enough to know what it's like to be tempted. But he knows the struggle of temptation better than any human being who's ever lived. And I quoted from C.S. Lewis directly a few weeks ago when we encountered this in chapter 2. I just want to summarize the point he made here today. And that was, he said, Jesus experienced temptation to the fullest extent precisely because he never gave into it. So Jesus knew the struggle. He knew the difficulty and the suffering better than anyone of what it was to resist temptation. And in so doing, that bred sympathy for us and understanding to what the struggle is like for us. Something that I pondered this week, uh, just as a pilgrim, and really struck me, kind of the flip side of the same coin, but personally, I, I just, I realize I struggle with sympathy towards sinners sometimes, and yet I sin. But Jesus sympathizes with sinners, and he never sinned. Just let that sink in, if nothing else today. Meditate on that reality this week, and let your heart be softened to the kind of God that you have. That Jesus never gave into temptation may make you think that it would have the opposite effect upon him. Like, I never failed where you did, so you're dead to me kind of an effect. But it didn't. Jesus didn't have to fail where you or I have failed in order to empathize with the struggle it is to walk in obedience to God. That's amazing. And I want to be clear here that the word for weakness in chapter 4, verse 15 isn't just the general frailty of what it means to be a human being. We're good at some things, but we're bad at some others. We get sick, we will die one day, those types of things. No, it actually includes the kind of weakness that makes us, gives us the propensity to sin. If you look at the context we read in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, we're given a description of the high priest in Israel. Here's what it says. It says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, speaking of sinners, since he himself is beset with weakness. Same word, by the way, as was used in chapter 4. Because of this, that is because of his weakness, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins as he does for those of the people. So the high priest in Israel dealt gently with fellow sinners because he was one himself. But Jesus is the better high priest because he deals gently with us and he never sinned. Just let that sink in. I think that this can be, is why it can be hard for some of us to believe that God really welcomes us into his presence, not only when we're at our best, but even when we're at our worst. Because again, it's easy to project upon God our own experience. Because if we, as people who still sin, struggle to have sympathy towards others who sin, then we think, how could God, who is perfect, still have patience towards me, still want to be with me? But he does through our high priest, Jesus, who sympathizes with us in our struggle. That's both profoundly encouraging to me about who our God is and also profoundly convicting to me when I'm finding myself judgmental towards others in their sin. I remember when I was, you know, a teenager, maybe even as a young adult, seeing people struggling with substance abuse and thinking to myself, well, that's just the consequences of a series of bad choices. And on some very logical high level, that's true. 
But half of a lifetime later, having dealt with struggles myself, trials myself, pain myself, I can empathize with how easy it would be to turn to something to numb you from the painful emotional and physical experiences we go through in life. I can sympathize with that person's situation. My first response can be one of compassion and not judgment. Now, there's a difference between sympathizing with sinners and endorsing sin that's important to make here. In John chapter 8, Jesus had compassion, you may remember, famous story from John's gospel, on a woman who was caught in adultery that the religious leaders were about to stone. And Jesus' famous words uh, there that you may remember is, he who is without sin, go ahead and be the first to cast a stone. What Jesus did here is he drew near to this woman in compassion and he pointed out to everyone else who was present that the same weaknesses that were in her that led to her sin was the source of their own sins. And one by one, they scattered. Jesus was teaching the people a lesson on empathy there. But after that, he told her, he said, is there anyone left here to condemn you? And she said, no. And he said, neither do I condemn you. But he said, go and sin no more. Jesus' sympathy didn't come at the expense of God's holiness because Jesus called it what it was. But what's more, even if this woman did sin again at some point in the future, and no doubt she would in some way, God's holiness was still upheld because Jesus went to the cross to suffer for that woman in her place for all of her sins. That's where God's holiness was acknowledged, even if she was to sin again in the future. So what I want you to see here is Jesus' sympathy towards sinners and upholding God's holiness are not incompatible. Jesus showed us that. So one reason we can have confidence that at our best or our worst, God always welcomes our approach is because Jesus, our high priest, sympathizes with sinners, even though he himself never sinned. Well, second reason we can have that confidence that Jesus welcomes us into his presence at our best and at our worst is not only because Jesus sympathizes with sinners, but God himself, God the Father does as well, which is demonstrated by his appointment of Jesus as the high priest. Don't miss this. A couple times recently, it's come up in conversation over the past few months that there are some who who view God the Father and God the Son in kind of this bad cop, good cop dynamic in their relationship. We at the end of the last Terra Talk uh, conversation, some of us stuck around and talked about this a little bit as we were talking about the Old Testament law and just, is God one and the same? Is there continuity between the God of the Old Testament and the New? And our answer was yes. But nonetheless, there are some people who would see a bad cop, good cop relationship between the Father and the Son. That some people have this picture in their mind of Jesus functioning as this advocate for us before God the Father in heaven, having to hold him back in his wrath lest he strike us down with lightning. Now, I want to say God's wrath towards sin is real. There's plenty of evidence in the scriptures for that, throughout the scriptures, not the least of which is what you see happening in the cross. But that picture is another unfortunate projection upon God that is based upon human logic and not scripture. The idea that if God is holy and he can't be in the presence of sin and Jesus' death in our place is the only thing that pardons us from sin and gives us righteousness, then Jesus must have to stand perpetually between us and the Father in order to prevent us from being destroyed is not the true picture 
of God the Father's heart posture towards his people. Now, it's an understandable conclusion to draw from some of the legal language that you see in the New Testament in the book of Romans and elsewhere surrounding concepts like justification. You've got these terms like penal substitutionary atonement and propitiation for sins and so forth that's meant to describe the legal ramifications for what Jesus did. But that's the point, that through Jesus, God has dealt legally with the consequences for our sins so that he's justified in granting mercy and grace to you and I. But his posture doesn't remain one of wrath toward his people, flawed as though we may be. The narrative of Scripture tells us a different story, whether examples in the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel, where through the prophet, God tells us he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would rather that they turn and live. Or the picture of the father of the prodigal son in the New Testament yearning for his wayward son to return, even when he's not yet at home. Pictures so very different of what our God is like. And I want to show you yet another reason why you can have confidence from our passage today that it isn't just Jesus who sympathizes with us, but God the Father as well. So in chapter 5, 1 through 5, we're given a description of the role of the high priest in Israel, um, starting off in verse 1 with an explanation that they were chosen from from among men. But who is the one who does the choosing here? Were they elected by the people? Were they self-appointed? No. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 4 to 5, we read this. And no one takes this honor for himself, that is, the appointment of the high priest, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So here's what I want you to see in the conclusion that you can confidently draw from this. Jesus didn't appoint himself as high priest because he was the more empathetic of those two members of the Trinity. Right? God the Father appointed Jesus as high priest and knew exactly what he was doing and knew the sympathy that Jesus identifying with us in his humanity would yield as he experienced temptation. God knew that. So you can have confidence that at our best and at our worst, God always welcomes your approach of himself because he himself can sympathize with us as he's the one who appointed Jesus as your high priest. Thirdly, we can have confidence that God always welcomes us no matter what we've done because he doesn't merely offer you sympathy this morning. He also offers you help in your time of need. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's relatively easy to express sympathy to another with our words alone. One may even be humble enough to withhold judgment when the difficulty that we see in someone's life was self-imposed or brought upon themselves. But sympathy is made most real when it's accompanied by an offer to help that person in their time of need. And that's exactly what we see God offering us right here. Which of us has not found ourselves in a situation that was a mess of our own making? And then we find ourselves hesitant to reach out to others because we realize how foolish we're going to come across and we imagine the only response that we'll get on the other end of that line is one of either disappointment or I told you so. But I bet you 
Many of you have also experienced somebody who responded when you did risk reaching out, though it was your own mess, and they helped you out, even though you know you didn't deserve it, and it made an impact upon you. Why? Because they were showing you something that's so unnatural to the world. They were showing you what God's grace looks like. The author is telling us here that because we have Jesus as our high priest, we can confidently expect to receive mercy, which is forgiveness for our sins, and grace, which is a gift that we don't deserve, in our time of need. And if you're worried that that offer is somehow conditioned upon when it's deserved, don't miss the context here. It's all about God's posture toward you precisely when you don't deserve it. The context is about your weakness, even the kind that can lead you to fail and sin. It's about your need for mercy, which we need forgiveness for our sins. And it's about your need for grace, which is God being willing to give you something when you don't deserve it. Through Christ, our high priest, God beckons us to come to him for help precisely when we are in a mess of our own making. We can come to him at other times too, of course, for other things. But the invitation here is most clearly for those moments when we feel least deserving of being in the presence of God. And finally, we can have confidence that God always welcomes us at our best and at our worst because as high priest, Jesus gives us unlimited access to his presence. The emphasis here is upon the always in this statement that I've been making over and over, the idea that we have access at any time to God. This would have been a radical concept to first century Jews. Up front, we talked about how the high priest in Israel would only go into the Holy of Holies, God's presence, one day a year on the Day of Atonement. He was the only one who could access God's presence in that way. No one else could go in. Uh, in, in the book of Exodus, actually, we're, we're given a description of what the high priest would wear, this priestly garment, which had these bells that were sewed to the hem of the garment. And we're not told this explicitly from Scripture, but tradition would have it that those bells were there so that when they went into the Holy of Holies, since nobody else could go in and access God's presence in that way, that if those bells stopped ringing, well, he might not be doing so well anymore. Maybe he offered up that sacrifice irreverently or whatever and had died. And tradition also has it that they would have a rope attached to his ankle so that if that did happen and those bells stopped ringing, then they, they could pull him, pull him out, of the temp- or out of the Holy of Holies. The point is this. No one else entered God's presence except the high priest and only one time a year. That picture of the high priest in the Old Testament is so different than Jesus. In the Old Testament, that high priest stood between God and the people, separated by this big heavy curtain. Um, That curtain, by the way, the same one that was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus gives us such a very different picture. Because Jesus shows us what it looks like to give us full access to the presence of God. In Hebrews 4.14, we're told, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So two observations here from that verse. Number one, all of Israel's high priests served here on earth. But Jesus has passed through the heaven, and he is in the immediate presence of God the Father at the throne at all times. And instead of Jesus being the only one now to have access to God, he opened up the way for anyone to have access to the throne room of God and in heaven, direct access. And rather, between, rather than standing between us and God, inhibiting our access to him, Jesus now serves to usher us into 
the presence of God in heaven. We can take this principle for granted, but it would have been hard to even fathom and such a privilege for the first century Jews to wrap their heads around that difference in access. The second thing here I want to say is that there isn't one special occasion during the year in which this access for us is granted to God's presence. Instead, we're encouraged, as it says, to approach the throne of grace with boldness to find help in our time of need. Well, our time of needs are not predictable. I don't know about you. I wish I could plan when I'm going to have times of needs, but they they come whenever they come, and they come in droves. So probably more than one time a day, you're going to have needs that you're going to want to go to God with. And the point is here, through Jesus, your high priest, you can now do this whenever. In fact, one of the other common translations, the NAT, the NET, the New English translation, translates it that way because that is the sense here. Whenever we need help, it says. When it says draw near in our translation here at the beginning of verse 14, in Scripture, that expression is used almost always in the context of prayer. And so that's your common application here for what's being implied by the author that whenever and wherever you find yourself in a time of need, you can go to God through prayer. It's an amazing privilege that Jesus has secured for us through his high priesthood. So we can have confidence that God always welcomes us at our best and at our worst because Jesus as high priest has given us unlimited access to God in heaven. Let me just close in in saying this. Some of you this morning may be a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of having a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. It may feel to you like that enables or endorses the idea of sin somehow. My guess is that some of the people who are made most uncomfortable by this idea are also some of the people who spend the least amount of time in the throne room of God because you don't feel like you deserve it. And so how could God, who is holy and perfect, see you any differently than you see yourself? But he does. And at some point, you're going to need to trust by faith that God's grace is radical precisely because it's not deserved, and God's love is radical precisely because when you think he would reject you, he instead invites you warmly to come into his presence. And if that sounds too good to be true for you this morning, it's not. And it's why we can worship Jesus as the better high priest. So let's pray and give him thanks for that. Father, a truth like this is so radical to us in this fallen world where we live with shame and condemnation, though we don't need to through Christ, that it's hard for us to embrace. God, there are some here today who have lived their lives giving lip service to the gospel of grace. They can profess those words, but they've never really believed it to be true for themselves. Oh, Lord, open our eyes today. Open their eyes to see this reality and let it change their hearts to know that right now, in this moment, you warmly welcome them into your presence because we have a high priest in Jesus who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And we pray all these things in his precious and wonderful name. Amen.